Welcome back, Huda Thunkers. I'm your host, Zeb, here with another episode of the Huda Thunkin Podcast. This is episode five of season two. Uh, season two started in 2021. That's just how we'll be doing them. Each year is a different season. This episode is called Living Together, Symbiotic Relationships. And I'd like to start off by sharing something about my life. The first time I lived alone was during the year of 2017. I was a graduate student at Chippensburg University, and I lived in town on the main street, and I walked to classes uh, for my night class. Before that year, I had only ever lived with a roommate or, you know, my family as a kid. Being the social extrovert that I am, I was worried living by myself would be too lonely for me. And while at first I felt a bit alienated from friends and family, I learned to embrace and eventually love the solitude of it. Living alone is amazing. <laughs> I, it really is. I only wore pants if I left the house. All other times, I was in boxer briefs and a plush robe. <laughs> the word loneliness took on a whole new meaning as I found joy in just sitting down and writing stories, drawing illustrations, and reading books in my free time, of which I had plenty. Being around other people gives me energy and joy, but it turns out that other people are really a major distraction for what I'm doing. So being alone is what allowed my creative side to find outlets to express itself. That year of living by myself is why I started writing stories, which then became a blog and then eventually this podcast. So um, who to thunk a podcast actually has to thank that year uh, for its existence. But life doesn't always allow one to live by themselves, and when I graduated from Shippensburg University with my master's degree, with a 4.0 GPA, I might add, I had to find a job, and if I wanted to afford the cost of living, I needed a roommate too. I found a job in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where my good friend Sean was still living with his parents. Sean was happy to split rent with me, and for about two and a half years, we lived together in a financially symbiotic relationship. And symbiosis doesn't just exist when two people can't afford to live alone. In fact, most people, when asked to give an example of the word, would probably picture a more complex relationship, such as ones found in nature. So, let's give a definition of symbiotic. Invo it involves interaction between two different organisms living in close physical association. Uh, or denoting a mutual beneficial relationship between different people or groups. This definition is from Oxford Languages. So the National Geographic, they break it down quite nicely, um, symbiotic relationships in nature. They say planet Earth is inhabited by millions of species, at least, because different species often inhabit the same spaces and share uh, or compete for the same resources. They interact in a variety of ways known collectively as symbiosis. These are five, there are five main symbiotic relationships. The first is mutualism. That's the one we'll be talking about the most today, or the only one we'll be talking about today. Mutualism is when both organisms, organisms in the relationship benefit from it. And then there's commensalism. Uh, that's when one organism benefits from the relationship and doesn't really necessarily harm the one, the other organism. Then there's predation. This one's kind of hard to think of as a symbiotic relationship, but it is. Predation is when one organism straight up feeds on the other. You know, um, lions feed on antelope and wolves feed on buffalo. That's, that's predation. It's symbiotic. One's definitely getting the short end of the stick, but it is symbiotic relationship. Then there's paratism. 
parasitism, which is, you know, parasite. It's one organism, one organism, the parasite lives on or inside another organism, the host causing it some harm, and it is adapted structurally to this way of life. And then there's competition. That's simple. Com- uh, contest between organism for resources, recognition, or group or social status. Now, these five main types are, are helpful to categorize symbiosis in your mind, but what I find to be actually fun is to examine the complex symbiotic relationships in nature. I watch a lot of nature documentaries. Um, David Attenborough is like a hero of mine, and I've jotted down a few of these symbiotic relationships that really blew me away, and I hope they blow you away too. First, I want to give... The first one I want to give is pretty much like an example to give you an idea of what kind of symbiotic relationship is going to be talking about. Um, let's start with a simple one that you may actually that may actually sound familiar to you. We've all seen or at least heard of the Pixar movie Finding Nemo, right? It's got Ellen DeGeneres in it. Um, it's a great, great movie. In the beginning of the movie, Nemo's dad, he's a he's a clownfish. His Nemo's dad's name is Marlin, and he explains the real-life symbiotic relationship between the clownfish and the marine plant, the anemone. Anemone. And they even say that. It's hard to pronounce in the movie. Anemone. The, uh, the anemone uh, provides the clownfish with protection and shelter, while the clownfish provides the anemone with nutrients in the form of waste, while also scaring off potential predator fish. So that's a symbiotic relationship. The clownfish gets a home and the plant gets food and protection. So it's a mutual, uh, mutual symbiotic relationship, and that's what we'll be talking about. So, but the main focus of this episode isn't between animal and plant or animal and animal. What I want to focus on is animal and man. They're truly unique symbiotic relationships, mutual symbiotic relationships. So get this. The first one's called the Greater Honey Guide. In Africa, there are men who venture out into the wilderness in search of honey from wild bees, but the landscape they have to traverse is vast. Trying to find a wild beehive up in the trees in such a large area is like trying to find a needle in a haystack. That old saying. But these honey hunters have an untamed helper. The greater honey guide is what they call a small brown bird. And the men call to the bird in their unique manner, and the bird replies with a particular direction, um, from a particular direction. The honey hunters follow the bird's calls until they come upon a wild bee's nest, believe it or not. And then smoke is used. Uh, by the honey hunters to send the bees into emergency mode, tricking the bees into thinking their hive is on fire. This allows the men to harvest the honey with less stings. In return, the men leave leftover honey for the greater honey guy, the bird, to eat. That is their share for the hunt, basically. Studies have shown with the help of the birds, the men are three times as likely to come home with honey. Other animals help humans forage for food like dogs, falcons, and cormorants. But the great honey guide bird is unique is that it is not domesticated at all. It's amazing. NPR's Food for Thought interviewed a researcher um, who's basically on the ground for this. And this is what they said. They're definitely not domesticated and there's they're in no way coerced, says Claire Spottiswood of the University of Cambridge in the United Kingdom. And they're not taught in any conventional way as well. Humans are not deliberately going out there and training honey guides. So that's amazing. 
The story of the Great Honey Guide is the extremely rare instance where a wild animal works with a human, but it isn't the only case. Next, we have urban hyenas. That's right, hyenas, the ones from The Lion King. In uh, I keep doing Disney movies. In the small Ethiopian town of Harar, that's H-A-R-A-R, I love the way how it's pronounced, Harar, villagers have used a unique strategy to protect their livestock from predators. Spotted hyenas are welcomed by the townspeople and are even fed meat scraps in exchange for security. Now, hyena, just to give you an idea how crazy that is, hyenas have a jaw strength about 1,100 pounds per square inch, or for um, my non uh American listeners, that's 7,500 7, kilopascals and are known to take down prey as large as 1,700 pounds or 800 kilogram buffalo. So they take down buffalo and they have that great jaw strength. Hyenas are a species that frequently have to go toe-to-toe with lions in the wild in order to eat. Yet these extremely adaptable, powerful hyena day uh, roam through Harar without issue from the humans that live there. In fact, some Harar residents have passed down the practice of feeding the hyenas for generations and get pretty friendly with them. And it has now become a tourist attraction for a fee. Get this, for a fee, you can travel to Harar and feed a hyena from a stick jutting out of your mouth. It'll eat the food right from that stick in your mouth. Unbelievable. The reason why I said they're called, you know, I refer to them as these extremely adaptable, powerful hyena day, because I was going to say these extremely adaptable canine, but I looked it up. Hyenas are not part of the dog or cat families. Instead, they're unique. They have their own family of the hyena day. So they're such a unique species. I always thought they were a canine. Completely wrong. They're not canines. They're their own thing, um, which is kind of wild. Evolution is wild. Next up, we have another um, relationship. This is dolphins and fishermen. This one you may have heard of um, because it's on our Western Hemisphere here. And in the small municipality of Laguna, Brazil, the fishermen wade into the Atlantic Ocean to about knee high. They are there to catch plump fish, silverfish, known as mullets. But the water is too murky and the fish too fast for the fishermen to catch on their own. So they don't even bother looking to see where the mullets are. Instead... They're looking for a friendly dorsal fin uh, of bottlenose dolphins. The dolphins chase schools of mullets toward shore, then signal the fishermen to cast their nets by slapping their heads and tails against the water. This allows the fishermen to bring home a full haul of mullets and breaks up the schools so the dolphins have an easier time catching individual fish. Um, and plus, most fishermen will toss a few fish back to the sea uh, to help their mammalian helpers. It's kind of amazing. So we have the bird that helps people find honey. We have hyenas who chase off other predators and are fed meat by townspeople. And then we have dolphins who help fishermen in Brazil catch more fish with nets. All of them undomesticated, all of them untamed animals that are doing this. It's amazing. Um, you might argue that the hyenas are getting are in the process of being tamed because what they're doing with feeding them from sticks from their mouth, but they're still wild animals. They're hyenas. I, I'm not going to pay to do that because hyenas are terrifying. But anyway, all three of these mutually symbiotic relationships between man and beast have something in common. No one involved seems to know when the tradition began. The men of sub-Saharan Africa don't know how long their people have listened to the greater honey guide bird. The men of Harar, Ethiopia, don't know how long they have been feeding hyenas, 
and the fishermen of Laguna, Brazil, don't know how long they have fished with the dolphins. All of them just say that they have passed down the tradition for generations. It's almost like you, it almost makes you think that at one point, man grew alongside nature uh, instead of just plowing it to the ground to pave asphalt. They evolved that way. That's how long it's been going on. Most likely no one can remember because it's part of nature. It's going on for probably hundreds, maybe thousands of years. Planet Earth is our home. We like to think that it's just our home, but we share it with countless other life forms. Every single one of us, every single one of us life forms are trying to survive as best as we can. Our initial instinct may be to try it alone, but the symbiotic relationships suggest we may fare better if we work together. So maybe finish your day with the mindset of being open to nature and the opportunities it brings your way. I don't expect you to go outside and talk to songbirds to try and start an evolutionary branch of humans that talk to birds for food, but I do think this would be a better place if you started to view the na natural world as a whole, as our home, instead of just something to tame. Thanks for listening to Who to Thunk It. This was Season 2, Episode 5. The accompanying blog post will be in the description of this podcast. I put out videos and all my resources on there. Thanks for listening, guys. Uh, tune in next week.